0: Welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host. And today we are super excited to have Susie Allison of Busy Toddler as our special guest. Susie is an early childhood education expert and advocate. She has a degree in elementary education, taught kindergarten and first grade, and was a math and reading curriculum specialist. Once Susie had children, she found her true passion for simple kids' activities that didn't involve screen time and so Busy Toddler was born. It has evolved into a million follower Instagram account and a play-based internet haven. Today we will be chatting with Suzy about the best tips for keeping your toddler busy and happy. Susie knows firsthand that being a parent is tough and being a kid can be even tougher. So let's welcome Susie to learn more about hands-on learning and how we can all make it to nap time a little easier. Oh my gosh, Susie, we're so happy to have you on our podcast, Chick Chat. Our team was super pumped to hear that you were going to be our guest, so thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, it's a total pleasure. I'm so happy you all invited me.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Susie, I think everyone, at least our listeners, they've got to know who Busy Toddler is, (laughs) but I want to know a bit more about you and your experience to start us off. Susie, can you tell us a bit about you, your background as an educator and learning specialist, and how that path led you to where you are today? Of course.
1: Well, I'm a Pisces. I like long walks in Target, (laughs) Um, sitting in my driveway alone, (laughs) pretending I don't need to go inside yet. Okay. About my education. So I went to school actually to be a journalist and I was absolutely on the journalism path. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write. I'm going to tell people stories. And then as I got farther and farther in my journalism career at college, I realized what I liked was teaching people how to write. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to the original childhood plan of being a teacher. And so I graduated college and I became a kindergarten teacher. And then I got promoted to first grade and I had just the absolute best time. And I got to work as a math specialist and as a reading specialist within my school district. It was a fantastic time in my life. And then after years and years of infertility and trying and waiting and hoping, I finally had my first son in May of 2013. I left a Susie-shaped hole in my classroom door and I ran to be home with him. We were able to do that to have me stay home with him. And then... A year later, I became pregnant on an absolute surprise with my daughter, and she ended up being a lot of the catalyst for Busy Toddler because I was just so overwhelmed by having two kids under two, and I felt like I must possibly be the first person that's ever done this before. (laughs) That's how it felt. It was so much. And I woke up one morning and thought, if I'm overwhelmed and if I'm struggling here, other people are overwhelmed and other people are struggling. And I have found this little trick of using activities to help my day with my toddler and with dealing with having a newborn. And I thought, I wonder if other people would be interested in those little tricks that I've come up with. And so I was sitting in our guest bedroom one morning in June, and I thought, oh, I wonder if the name Busy Toddler is open on Instagram. And it was, and I took it, and that's how I became who I became. And sure enough, it turned out there were a lot of people that were interested and having similar problems that I was having and looking for
0: similar solutions. So
1: it all ended up working out.
0: Oh, that is so cool. I love hearing the evolution of it all because you're so right. I feel like a lot of moms, especially when you have the second one, you're like, oh, yeah. man. Oh, I yeah. thought one was hard, but just kidding.
1: <laughs> my my friend asked me the other day, she has two kids uh, under three, and she pointed to her second. She said, I think I'm going to need to talk to you about what to, to do with that second one. And I said, oh, well, whatever you did with your firstborn, just take that spreadsheet, light it on fire, throw it out the window, and we're starting over fresh.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's a, second,
1: that's a second born. <laughs> You you're basically also get scratch. like a
0: redo too. So like yeah. everything you messed up, you're like, okay, yeah. I can do it right this time. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> You get a redo and a completely new playbook when you get your exactly. second. I love and then it. as you add more kids to that, it just really, it really goes all up. Oh. I love it. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: So what initially inspired you to start creating like your own easy kids activities? Because I know that you said it was having that second baby, but what was it like? thinking oh, it's kids' activities and using your background, like how did busy toddler really come up if you're like, okay, this is I'm going to choose this handle and start doing these activities rather than like it could have been anything. What was it about these particular activities that just inspired you?
1: What I was doing with my son was I felt like after my daughter was born I, I missed my friend. we had spent twenty good months together and and I really missed being around him. But I was so bogged down with having this newborn and having this baby that I was missing all this time with him. And that's that inevitable guilt that we get when we add another child or we change jobs or we move. You know, there's something that comes in between us and our relationship with our child. And then that creates that inevitable guilt that we all feel. But I wanted to try to figure out a way that I could still be with him and eliminate the fact that Daniel Tiger's mom was raising him at that point. And so I started looking around our house. We didn't have two nickels to rub together at that point. I couldn't run out and grab a bunch of supplies from Michael's or Hobby Lobby, which is what I was seeing a lot online. They were fantastic activity ideas online, but all of them were like, you're going to need $47 and it's going to take three hours to prep this, run to four different stores, and then you'll have your activity that they'll play with for three minutes. (laughs) And I was like... (laughs) No. No, there this is not going to work for us. So I started getting creative and looking around our house and the same way that a baker can look at a list of supplies and somehow create a a fantastic cake that we all want to eat, that's what I can do with activity supplies. I can look at things from around the house and and put them together in creative ways that are interesting and different and spark time with a child that they'll just sit and play and I could sit with him and we could chat again and we could talk while the baby was napping things that weren't taking long to prep at all, but gave him something to do and me something to put my brain into, give us a second to sit and think and reconnect and reset our day and reset our relationship together while that baby was napping. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I wonder if really if there are other families that are struggling to find this reconnection and this time with their child or to reset their day. Maybe they're having an awful morning and they need a minute to reset. And what's going to give them that minute to reset? It's an activity, you know, if we can hit the reset button. And so I thought, I'm going to share this. I'm going to challenge myself to do an activity with Sam every day. And I'm going to post that online every day. And this will be give me a great challenge. To kind of do this. And then it turned out that what became this essentially challenge for me was something that really ended up helping a lot of other people to find the same thing that I was looking for to drink my coffee, not out of the microwave, (laughs) to sit for a few minutes, to connect with my child, to reset the day. All these great things came out of this one little idea of using the things we have around our house to build up a little activity.
0: And I love how you said that it was your challenge, but it really became the solution to yeah. your issue but also to so many other parents issues they're like because it's true i feel i feel that whenever i watch or look at all these amazingly talented diy People who can do and that's just not me. <laughs> I was, I was like, I need the basics. I need simple things. I don't want to have to run to the dollar store or whatever. No. <laughs> if I have something at home that I can easily do, it just makes it that much simpler to give my older child while I'm dealing with my daughter. And yeah. so I totally, yes, I, I love that. I love that. And I love the analogy how you said, because I watched I watched the show um Chopped. You know how they give yes. you like gross random ingredients yes. and then they make something delicious. You're so right. That's essentially what you were doing. <laughs> like
1: essentially all essentially random
0: stuff in your kitchen. Now think of an activity that's it educational, really helpful and will keep your child and your toddler busy for more than 2 seconds.
1: <laughs> it absolutely was. It was like here's these random maybe like art supplies that we've collected from a couple of birthdays or leftover from my classroom days. Here's like our junk drawer in the kitchen. Here we've got like the uni- utensils and we've got a few things in the pantry all right what can we do with this the my original sensory bin tub was an under the bed storage container full of junk from college that my husband and I definitely didn't need to be carting around into like the second decade after college and so I dumped that out and that became our sensory bin they have such beautiful sensory bins out there and such lavish little tables now but my heart still lies in that five dollar target bin (laughs) because that's what I had
0: Amen. (laughs) And I like that. Rather than me having to purchase some big – which, I mean, that's beautiful and great if you're able to do that. But sometimes mama just needs something practical and easy to do, you know? Exactly.
1: (laughs) And then I'll snore back under the bed when I'm done with it. Exactly.
0: (laughs) There's an immense pressure on children to grow and develop faster than nature wants in today's world. Why should we as parents be concerned about this? And what can we do to help our children develop appropriately?
1: I think the analogy I always like to use is that we're building a house here. And we can rush and throw up some sides really quick, get some walls built, some beautiful windows, put up some nice trim, and get our kids looking like they're ready. But if we're missing that great foundation, that house is going to crumble. And I don't mean crumble as in the child's going to fail, but We need to build that foundation. And early childhood is when we have that chance to really grow this beautiful foundation for our children to stand on for the rest of their academic lives and their personal lives. And we can start that now. But if we rush through it, trying to throw up some walls on letters or numbers or shapes, we really miss this beautiful opportunity to help them. And what happens a lot of times, what we see in childhood and development is when we get into this rush, the skills don't have time to form and the foundation doesn't have time to build. We always say earlier isn't better. Rushing it isn't better. We have to trust nature the way that we trusted it when our children were learning to walk. When we saw that our kids were getting ready to walk, we didn't run out and get flashcards on walking and watch a video on them walking and read a book to make sure they understand the process of walking and get like a workbook out about showing the skills of walking. We trusted nature. We trusted the process. We did what we could to provide a foundation, to provide support and opportunities to them. Mm -hmm. But we trusted the child. We trusted nature. And I think that is so lost in early childhood these days is this lack of trust Mm -hmm. in just this process that has been around, obviously, for all of human civilization that children grow and develop, and they grow on this very specific path. And we've seen this. It's been studied for hundreds of years, how children develop. And when we rush it and push it, yes, they might get to an outcome faster, but was the foundation good? And when they get up into high school and they're asked these much more complicated tasks, do they have the foundation to stand on? Or is the foundation all flashcards and workbooks? We can do so much for our kids in this early childhood years just by trusting the process and letting nature do what nature has done for generations of children.
0: I appreciate you saying that because it's true. I have a 4-year-old and a 1-year-old. And for my 4-year-old, I feel the pressure of, okay, he needs to start getting kindergarten ready. And if he can start reading and doing all this stuff, I was like, I wasn't reading in kindergarten. Why why are we having all these pressures on our kids? And then you feel like you're failing as a parent if you're not – meeting certain expectations. And it's just a spiral. So I, I appreciate hearing that from someone who has that experience in the education system of, hey, let's just slow down for a minute and really focus on the fundamentals and not be so focused on flashcards and workbooks and all of that kind of stuff. So I appreciate that. We get so focused on the outcome I think that we forget
1: that learning is the process. It's not the end result. It's what we've done along the way to get there. And when we are so focused on, well, they just have to get to this point of kindergarten ready or this point of knowing their letters or this point of being able to read a book, that's great. But the learning happened along the way. And so let's make sure we give time to the learning and not just put that outcome on a pedestal.
0: I think that's so important. It is. It so is. And also, like, what, what do you recommend? What can we do to help our, our children develop appropriately? So if it's not doing those flashcards and workbooks, what is it that, that we should be doing? <laughs>
1: I think one of the easiest things that we can do in early childhood is giving our kids experiences, exposure, and helping them build up their knowledge. And I think one of the things we can think about is, you know, as our kids get older, if they start to read a book, let's say, about waterfalls, mm-hmm. if they've never seen a waterfall, That book's going to be really hard for them to comprehend. And they might be able to tell you some things about the passage they read or about the waterfall. But if they've never seen a waterfall, then those analogies and the similes and the beautiful metaphors that maybe were in that text are going to be really hard for them to understand. So we can look at early childhood as this opportunity we have of growing knowledge and growing their understanding of the world. And and the world isn't going to be found on a screen or on an iPad or in a YouTube video, actually letting them experience it. Now, of course, we can't let them experience everything. I don't have a camel. I can't take my kids to see a camel. So we can use videos and things as that kind of vicarious experience. But really just growing this opportunity for them to really just see the world and see life. And it doesn't have to be expensive. And it doesn't have to be something that you're, well, I just blew my retirement fund on trying to help my children have experiences or or grow their knowledge. It's things as simple as instead of just reading about the construction site, take them and let them sit there and watch the construction site. Take them to see that waterfall. Walk them through a forest. Let them see and touch and feel and, and be deeply immersed in the world and And we can give them that. And it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be fancy. We can just give them this beautiful base of knowledge. Again, going back to that foundation, we can give them this foundation of experiences to to carry them when they are asked. You know, we call it background knowledge a lot in school. What's the child's background knowledge? And that becomes a really defining, really defining skill as the child gets older because things become easier to read or easier to understand the more background knowledge they have. So if you can really look at early childhood as this opportunity you have to build their background knowledge and just to let them experience things, that's one of the best things that you can do and one of the best places that you can kind of hang your hat in this stage of childhood.
0: Yeah. It actually reminds what you were just explaining, it reminds me of a friend who said that in her family, each week they would pick like a different place in the world and they would do activities around what they did in that area one night they would create like a recipe that's from that place and they would taste the foods and talk about it and dress up and all of that kind of stuff. So that kind of reminded me like that giving them is. that experience, even then yes. if you're not able to go to Italy, like you can right. pretend for that week yeah, it's Italy week and we're going to make cannolis and whatever. <laughs> let
1: them have that deep dive, you know, let them go deep into something that they want to go deep into. I love that. That's such a great. That's such a great example.
0: Yeah, okay, great. And I know you are an advocate for appropriate early childhood mm-hmm. education and we love that. And I know that over the years, there has been a shift in standards and the logic, you know, we feel has become flawed. Why are these standards inappropriate, in in your opinion? And as parents, what should we really be concerned when it comes to helping our children thrive?
1: So the issue in the United States with the standards that we have in early childhood is that and this really goes back into the 80s. So this is a problem that has now spanned a good 40 years in our country. And it, and I always try to point out to everybody, it's a bipartisan issue. <laughs> both sides of the aisle have contributed yes. to this. So this isn't something that we can look at different political views on. This is education. This is children. This is a very neutral, almost a neutral topic because there's been issues from, from both sides on this. So what we've ended up with is we've ended up with a set of skills right now that were written from the top down. They started at senior year of high school and they started trying to figure out what they wanted kids to know. And by the time they got down to kindergarten, they were left with this really wide gap, this really wide gap that they needed kids to make up in order to make this sequence of skills work. And so what that ended up doing was it ended up putting this huge burden on preschool and kindergarten and even first grade to essentially make up a set of skills and a set of standards to rush through them in order to make the sequence work all the way up to senior year of high school. And we built this very test-driven system mm-hmm. with really quantifiable, you know, we really wanted data that on these kids that was very focused on like reading and math and not a lot else. And again, it goes back to we lost this opportunity for kids to just learn knowledge. And we lost these experiences for kids to have. And so- We have this system now in place, unfortunately, and the problem really doesn't lie with teachers because teachers are given these standards. People always ask, why do the teachers do this? The teachers are given the standards. This goes way up. This goes all the way up, up to the education department. And what we can do as parents is, especially in these early years, to know better and to understand that it is a flawed system right now that our children are being put into and they're being asked to do things that we were not asked to do and that no but child has been asked to do in previous generations. And that, again, we're, we're missing that foundation and, and we're rushing them through these standards so quickly and so fast, just again with this end goal in mind. So I think the, the best thing that a parent can do saying, We really can't change the standards right now. We can't fix this. It's not going to fix overnight. So what can we do for our children in, in this generation is we can go the opposite way with how we handle our children at home. So at home, we can have very developmentally appropriate lifestyle, which is very play focused and very free and open. And we can be giving them these experiences and this knowledge that they may not be getting at school because school has to focus on just these very limited standards. So what I would encourage parents to do is to just think about your child and what is your child interested in and let those little deep dives happen. Let yourself create that knowledge for them at home. And one of the most important things we can do is retain this understanding that childhood is very play-based and needs to be very focused on play. And so if the child is at school for a certain number of hours in the day, let's make sure that they're getting a set of play at home rather than putting them into other adult-led activities or things like that, that we're really giving them this opportunity to have play and to have time at home to just be a kid and to kind of go opposite of what they're facing in the schools. It's not perfect and it's not a perfect option that we have. I don't know that there is one right now. But the best thing we can do is just to stay level-headed and to study the course and to remember how we developed, how our parents developed, how our grandparents developed, and to try to come back to some of that with the way that we're raising our children and the way that we're letting them develop.
0: That's so beautiful and so comforting. (sighs) And I hope that it's not adding an additional stress level on parents. Right. Hey, now you need to also create this (laughs) play-based great environment because you're also just trying to survive. (laughs) But it really is just getting it back to the basics. And I have to just say, Susie, like in another life, you also must have been a Montessori guide at some point because (laughs) everything you're saying, I'm like, yes, yes, that sounds (laughs) like that. But yeah, I appreciate hearing all of that. And luckily, again, Busy Toddler offers a lot of these things that you can easily do at home.
1: (laughs) And I hope I offer a reminder to parents that That we can just be simple in childhood. That, like you said, we don't want to add extra pressure of you have to do all these things to like counteract it. It's just be simple and you don't need to get caught up in what your child maybe can or can't do or things like that. Just have a simple outlook on childhood and bring it back to that really simple focus that, gosh, we were so blessed with. Who knew we were so blessed in our childhoods?
0: Yes. (laughs) With what we were
1: afforded (laughs) and what our parents were afforded. And can we give our kids some of that simplicity back? Yes. I hope so. I hope so, too.
0: And yeah, just play with them. Even yeah. if uh, a lot of people are like, but I don't want to play. <laughs> that's just not my thing. I'm not into playing. There are, again, the act- there are activities where you can then be a spectator and say like, hey, that's awesome. And that's so important is we there
1: becomes this guilt on parents that, that the only way that they can build and foster a relationship with their child is that they have to sit down and play with their child at all times of the day. And that's just not true. In fact, research shows us that the more a child can play without an adult, Better for the child. And so when we take on that spectator role, we have to really shift that narrative and say, I'm not ignoring them right now. I'm truly letting them do the best thing for them. And now I have the opportunity to do the jobs that I need to do. I can make dinner, I can do the laundry, I can answer these emails, and they can have and do their job, which is very different than the narrative that we've been given in this generation of parenting, which is that you need to spend all your time consumed and working with this child. And that's simply not the case. You can let them and you should let them have those moments of play without an adult. And then maybe come back together later and read a book together and, or play a game together, color, cook brownies, something like that. I always say, and my kids know, I'm not good at playing ponies. This is not (laughs) my forte. I do a dynamite read aloud. I love a game. I'm very competitive. Let's play those things. And then you go do what your brain is wired to do. My brain is not wired to imaginary play with blocks at this point in my life. It was. It's not anymore. But I'd love to sit and do a puzzle with you and chat and connect and build our relationship that way. And I think we just need to give so much permission to parents right now because there's such a misconception that they need to be sitting with their child and playing with their child all day long and then letting this mountain of other work build up around them, because if I donate all my time to playing with my child all day, then I have no time to do all these other things that are desperately need to be done. And then it's just this cycle of pressure and things on top and things mounting up when really we can do our jobs and we can do our tasks and let them do their jobs and do their tasks and then come back together for family, for quality, for connection time
0: a little bit later. Yeah. And Do you hear that, listeners? We are giving you permission that you do not have to play with them all the time. Imaginative play is not always our strength, and that's okay. It (laughs) It isn't, and when we do it with a child, we
1: accidentally change the play. We try so hard. We don't mean to. What does it mean for a child to be playing? It means that they have free will. They have free choice. They're imagining. They're creating their own rules, but when an adult comes in, the child loses some of that because they ask the adult what to do or what the adult thinks or they lose their free will to leave the game because they want to sit and not hurt your feelings And when they're done. So it really does change this play dynamic. And it's something that is really fascinating in the studies that have been done on it about what does play look like? And what it always comes back to is it's p- the best play for children is play without an adult, which is so cool for us because it's yeah. so opposite <laughs> of what we have been told. So let's, you know, we spread the word, spread it out there.
0: It's It's better. Oh my gosh. It is. So freeing. It It really is. Oh gosh. Okay, Susie, as a former educator, what skills do you think are most important for our children to have as they begin their school journey?
1: I think if you can instill in your child curiosity, and kids are so curious and sometimes to a point where we're like, okay, and I'm done with the 50 questions, but that's a good thing. That curiosity and that questioning is such a good thing because what we want kids entering school with is being self-motivated, being independent and being curious. We want them questioning. What we don't want is children who are used to being handed the answer. Because when a child is being used to handed the answer or that there's only one answer, like in a workbook or flashcard, there's one answer. And, you know, the teacher or the parent will give you that answer. If there's only one answer, then the child doesn't understand how to work for themselves and how to find answers on their own. And that's what we deeply want children to know when they get to school is that they can find the answers for themselves, that they have the ability to question and they have the ability to ask. And they don't need someone standing over them saying, this is how you do it, step one, step two, step three, step four. We want to let them have that ownership. So if we can raise our kids to be self-motivated And to know the value of questions and really to instill in them the value of the learning process, not of that final outcome, but look at this process you just went through to get here. That is so cool how you figured out how to tunnel through that dirt to make that water go through. Tell me more about that process you took. If we can really hone in on being excited for our kids on the process That would be one of the coolest things that a kid could go to school with is knowing that Mm -hmm. the outcome is one thing, but let's focus and let's be so excited about the process that it took to get there.
0: Yes. Yes. And I so agree because as a child, I felt like I couldn't ask questions. So I I felt, oh, I need to know the answer. And so I was not the girl raising my hand. If someone says, do you have any questions? I was just too timid to say. I don't understand. Can you explain it? Because that showed weakness or whatever. And no, it's encourage our kids to ask questions. Or I was told like, look it up. (laughs) And yeah. That's fine, but it didn't in- inspire me to like learn the whole mm-hmm. process. So I love how you describe like helping them walk through and learn how to discover the answer themselves rather than just look it up or whatever.
1: Yeah. Look it up or here, let me just tell you what it is. Yes. Like let them try it. Let them have that moment of figuring out, will this happen? It's, you know, it doesn't have to be in every conversation you have with them, mm-hmm. but oftentimes I'll catch myself before I start to say the answer to something, I'll go, wait, You figure it out. Let's set this up. If you want to know, is this going to float, then here's a bowl of water. Figure out if it's going to float let's go through this together or let's, you want to know. We were working on mummifying apples. How weird is that? My kids are homeschooled. We were working on mummifying apples. And my daughter said, will this process work with flowers? And before I answered, I just said, I don't know. Let's, how let's do you want to find out? It. And she came yeah. up with this whole experiment on how to mummify her little flowers that she picked from our yard and, and how cool for her to have that experience. So then look at this and say i came up with this experiment and i'm trying to find an answer and there for no reason other than i want to know yeah and i think that's such a beautiful thing to instill in our kids is this idea that you can just want to know oh that I you know you don't that. have to have a reason just want to know it's, i always yeah. say to my kids the smartest people in the world ask the best questions yes ask questions they didn't get that way because they sat there And then we're sitting there in silence in their unknowing. They ask, they get their needs met, get your needs met. If you don't understand it, get your needs met
0: ask the question. Oh, amen. And how cool that you are basically like encouraging her curiosity. And that's like science right there. Yes. Also incorporating that. That's just so cool. I love that. Thank you. <sighs> okay, Susie. So you have said it is your mission to bring hands-on learning back to childhood. Can you tell us what a day of hands-on learning might look like?
1: I think a day of hands-on learning is just a day where the child is doing as much yeah. as possible. And and we have entered into, as we've talked about in this podcast a lot, is that our kids aren't having these experiences. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. maybe looking at a worksheet about an apple and they see it on an app and then maybe there's a flashcard of an apple. Let's let the child hold the apple. Let's let them cut it open. Let's let them look at it and just have that time with it. There's so much more you can learn from touching it. And so when we talk about hands on learning in early childhood, what we're just talking about is the child touching and, and doing with their hands as much as they can. And that might look like just playing with blocks. It might look like building a tower out of their food at the table. It might, you know, it just is going to look in so many different ways. But the biggest thing is we just want their hands working and we want them touching and feeling and getting that whole body connection with whatever it is that they're trying to piece together as much as possible. And that might mean sitting and reading it in a book. It absolutely might mean that because we obviously like we talked about you can't give them every experience, so we we look for those vicarious experiences that we can give them. But letting them have that opportunity to dig in the backyard, to go to the park and touch the swings, to ride their bike and all those beautiful parts that were so ingrained in our childhood. But we've gone so far the opposite direction of just kind of sitting, looking at things that we can get data on. You know, we can We can grade a worksheet. We can look at a workbook and we can, quote, prove the child is learning. That's a little harder to do when you're just having the child look at an apple and cut it open and touch the seeds and and feel the way the skin feels. It's different than the, you know, than the center part. And it. So it makes that beautiful star. Remember you learning to do that and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, look, it makes a star. That's what kids need in, in early childhood. They need those moments of actually doing. And so I think when we talk about hands-on learning, that became this phrase that almost has become so overused that we're so used to hearing it. We don't even register what it means, but it just means to do, to just let them do, let their hands touch it, let them do it. That, that would be one of my best advices. In early childhood, just let them do.
0: Love it. Such a helpful tip. That's fantastic. And I've already said this already, Susie, we love following you on Instagram and seeing all of your helpful tips and ideas, but we want to know what are the top tips you recommend to parents who want to introduce their child to more hands-on play-based learning at home? Like, obviously we're going to get them to do, but what are great places to start? I think
1: a great place to start is just to look at your day and maybe look at a time that things aren't going great. And so for me, when I was starting Busy Toddler, it was that mid-morning. Mid-morning slog was really hard. I was putting a baby down for a nap. I had a two-year-old I needed who needed something to do, and I was exhausted already. It's 10 in the morning, and I've lived like three lives already. And so what I started doing was putting together these little tiny activities that made a huge difference. And so the things that I would pull out were, my mom always said, when in doubt, just add water. That was always one of her philosophies. Oh my God. That's the best best tip. When in doubt, just add water. So I would say you're not trying to redo school and you're not trying to redo a a daycare or learning center in your home. What you just need to look at is where are the times that we could use a little bit of help Mm -hmm. and create some really simple, some simple hands-on time during that time. And so maybe that looks like pulling out the art supplies and painting together, or maybe that looks like building a sensory bin, or it looks like having them take a bath. I swear I do 90% of things in the bathtub. My children would do them in the bathtub back then because there's water, they're contained. I can sit on the bathroom floor. I think I lived most of my early parenting on the bathroom floor. I swear I did recharging myself. So I think the biggest thing as you're trying to create this kind of environment for your kids is like I said, just let them do things, give them experiences. But find times when maybe you need a little bit of help. That's something I talk about a lot is this idea that activities are our tool and they're a resource that we can use. Is it something that you need to build for your child every day? Goodness, no. And I don't build them for my children every day. I build them when I need them and when I need that. So I think just starting with this idea that you don't need to manufacture something every day. You Do what you need to do
0: and 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 try to set your child up
1: with just more that they can do with their hands.
0: Perfect, and that makes it a lot more attainable. Rather than you're right saying, "Oh, every day at this time we need a different yeah. thing to do an activity or whatever." <laughs> that makes it a lot more attainable and doable.
1: I just think that there ends up being all this pressure, especially. And I always say, even from accounts like mine, you look at it and you think, "She must be setting up an activity for her kids every day." And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not achieving this, you know, unattainable goal. And the message I always want to get out to people is that I'm posting every day because I have to. Everybody, somewhere, some person needs an activity today, and I am going to push that out and let them, you know, find that activity and, and help them with it. But I use activities as tools. This is a tool that I came up with and I figured out when my kids are trying to reattach their umbilical cord, when my youngest is trying to like crawl back into me, when things aren't going well, when they're fighting or the play isn't there, or I'm desperate to get something else done or I just am not in a great mood for the day, then I use these activities as a tool to to hit the reset button, you know? I want to use that instead of just drowning in that feeling and drowning in that, I use activities as like this intermission or this reset to say, you know what? We're gonna pause, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna try again. And I would say 99% of the time, my kids end an activity And they are completely reset. We're all completely reset and ready to go. And they're ready to do what they need to do. Maybe they're ready to go back into play, or they've had some separation from me. And maybe I'm a little more recharged. I've had my coffee. I've had to sit. I've gotten the dishwasher unloaded. And I feel less overwhelmed with the day. Mm -hmm. It's just this idea that you can use activities as a tool and that they don't need to be something overwhelming or something that you're like, I don't do this. My kid's not going to Harvard. That's it. Like, this is the end. I didn't do I didn't do an activity with them on a Tuesday when they were three. And then that's there go the SAT scores. Yeah. It's not that. (laughs) Activities are just such a beautiful tool to help when things need help. If they don't need help for the day, fantastic. 10 out of 10 day for you. I love it. We want to see a day without activities. (laughs) (laughs) That's not always the case, (laughs) unfortunately.
0: (laughs) And you basically just answered my question because I was going to say how can activities help the parent and the child make it to nap time? Because we love that you say we're making it to nap time one we're activity it to nap time. at a time. <laughs> because we know that the days can be long and making yes. it to nap time can feel like an eternity, oh and that's gosh. truly. Every parent's new happy hour, so. (laughs) It is. Getting
1: that morning slog to get to to nap time. But then I would also like to point out the end of nap to dinner time, that's like purgatory right there. (laughs) That is the longest couple of hours of your life on Sundays.
0: It is. Sometimes
1: we would need an activity in the afternoon, but that becomes a much longer tagline. But that was the tagline I came up with the morning I opened Busy Toddler because Stop. I was like, this that is. That day what- was just
0: your like. That day, bing, that bing. was my day. I peaked <laughs> that day.
1: I peaked that day in June. That's it. I never did better than that day. Stop. (laughs) And I really did think, I was like, this is what I'm doing. I just want to make it to nap time. If I can just get to nap time, then the rest of the day is like a downhill of the roller coaster. You know, once I get to nap time, then we can coast downhill, you know, except for that purgatory nap time. But it it did. It just felt like, oh, my gosh, this is such a help when I need this. And and Mm. even back then, there were days we didn't need it. There were a lot of days we did. And maybe most days we did back then. But then as the kids got older, things got a little easier. Got easier. Then we added a third, (laughs) and they didn't get much easier. (laughs) It's a whole other. It's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing.
0: Oh, man. And I'm sure, Susie, you get asked about screen time, but I feel – we know that it's a taboo topic but many parents just find it unavoidable you know especially with so many demands on our plate and you just need that instant electronic babysitter right there <laughs> so yeah. what is what is your take on screen time i'm going to give
1: you two answers so first okay. my
0: first thing is screens
1: are a tool they're yes. a tool we have this we got the opportunity to parent in an era where we have screens and bless that we got it nailed it. So I love screens at my home, but we need to make screens predictable and we need to make it routine. We can use it when we need it extra. If you need a little extra, great, pull it out. Thank goodness you have that tool in your back pocket. How our grandmother survived, I will never know, but bless them for what they accomplished back in the 50s. And then the other thing is that, you know, screens need to be something that is parent controlled. And that really goes back to, again, it's routine, it's predictable. For my kids, it's a part of their morning and it's a part of their afternoon routine. This is the times that they have their screen time and it's very predictable to them. What that means is they're not asking for it throughout the day because they know when our times are. They're not going and trying to turn something on. They again they know when it is. They're not worried it's not going to happen again. When we turn it off, again we're you know we're really predictable about when it goes on and when it goes off, parent controlled. And when it goes off, they know when the next time is they're going to have it. Mm-hmm. So they're not asking us a bunch. They're not upset when it goes off. They know the routine is predictable. And that, that is a great... is really... That structure is mm-hmm. so important. And then that structure also allows me to be flexible with it mm-hmm. when I need to turn it on extra. And mm-hmm. I can say, guess what? I am in desperate need of cleaning the house. Have a great time watching Toy Story. And I will see you all in an hour and a half. And that's a beautiful thing to have that option. And then the other thing that I've really been learning about through another influencer who I adore, Ash Brandon, and they are such a screen time expert. And they were really pivotal to me for pointing out what a privilege it is when we don't need to use screens. That's not something that all parents can always give. Not using screens means that maybe you have other childcare options or... Your home is set up in a certain way or there's just so much privilege wrapped around the when we get to make that choice. And so we don't want to demonize people or put down when somebody needs to use screens. We don't know all that goes on in that person's life or their parenting. And we want to let them choose when it's that tool is appropriate, when they need that tool. And so it's just so important that we don't look at screens and say, this is this horrible, awful, bad thing, and nobody should be doing it. Use it how you need to use it. Use it how it fits in your life. If you feel like it's overrunning your children's lives, then take a step back and reclaim it as a parenting tool. Maybe it got to be too much of a kid run tool. Bring it back to a parent run tool, but recognize Also, in those times when you don't need it, what an awesome privilege that is that you get to turn that off because maybe you have a safe neighborhood and you have childcare that can help and all these different things that maybe another family might not have. So I think it's just really important that we view screen time and and that we start to try to change this narrative around it because I think it has. And of course, when you get into a situation when kids are on it too much or it's impacting the rest of their lives and the family structure isn't working because of it, then obviously that's when we need to make a change. And I think the biggest thing you can do is just hit that reset button, get it back onto a predictable schedule, get yourself moving in the right direction with it and reclaim it as a tool that you have in your back pocket because man, it is a great tool to
0: have <laughs> yes. when you need to use it. It is a great tool. And I so appreciate you saying that because... You're right. It really has been demonized. And we know all of the, we've heard all of the statistics and the right. benefits of not using screen time, but it is sometimes unavoidable and you shouldn't mm-hmm. feel like the worst parent in the world when you do use it. But I appreciate you sharing those tips because yeah, it, that's just more more attainable and more relevant to how things work in today's world. Yeah. It's it just, is. It's hard. So let's just give us ourselves some grace here. It's
1: hard to hear that narrative where it's just like that very black and white, like screens are bad, done, mm, ruined, gone, don't do it. Also, there is times when screens, you know, again, going back to our talk about experiences, like my kids are studying ancient Egypt right now. I cannot take them to Egypt right now. So we're using screens to find Egypt. And how cool is that, that we have that opportunity? And I'm not going to poo-poo that on myself (laughs) and say, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that in the evening time. But it's like, you know what? We're sitting together. We're watching a National Geographic. Like, how lame are we on Egypt? But how cool that we get to do that. What a great screen time opportunity that is to have added that. And the kids are like, think this is so cool. that They've gotten this extra screen time then in the evenings. (laughs) It's outside of our normal routine. And then when we end this little series on Egypt, We'll go back to what our normally scheduled programming is for the yes, evening time. for sure. How, but how cool that we
0: have that chance
1: so to use cool. screens.
0: So cool. And Susie, I have to say, that, but you're using screens like the optimal, perfect way.
1: <laughs> well, in that <laughs> setting. I mean, in the morning when they're just watching their Netflix, like that's for sure not the optimal, <laughs> but or it is because like I'm getting a shower and I'm making <laughs> breakfast without anybody like coming in and getting all over me. We're yeah. using it. We're okay. using
0: it how we need to. We're using it as a tool. Tool. <laughs> Good. Okay, so you are human. I was going to I was getting a little worried. I was like, "Oh my gosh, she's like using it as this perfect learning tool and talking That's- about it." <laughs>
1: That's an extra. That's an extra. No, we won't. We got the video games in the afternoon are very hot right now. After screen, after a quiet time, morning they've got their weird Netflix shows that they watch. I don't even know. They're
0: yeah, they're so
1: they're okay. a fun group.
0: All right, great. Good to know that you are just like us, Susie. That's <laughs> just <perfect>. like it. <laughs> okay, so many parents view activities. As a lot of work, we talked about that before, you know, from the supplies to set up and Mm clean up. We don't even, we didn't even talk about cleanup, but that too. (laughs) What are your tips for making hands-on play easy and accessible for everyone?
1: I would say don't go buy extra supplies because when we get extra supplies into our house a lot of times then we just get overwhelmed by the all these different possibilities use what you have use whatever you have around your house for me i try to make my activities based off of things that people are going to generally have in their house obviously i'm not going to hit it on the you know all the time but For the most part, I try to stick with the supplies that we have around the house. There's nothing feels better than when you go to make a new recipe and you're like, I have all these supplies. I have all these ingredients. I can do this. I want activities to feel the same way. So start with what you have. Look at what you have and stick within your boundaries, whatever you can offer. If you cannot offer messy play to your child, you see these people doing like a mud pit. That's me. Or some elaborate sensory bin. And, and you're like, I, I can't. That makes my skin crawl. Don't do it. Don't do it. Your child will be, don't do it. They will be fine. You stay within your boundaries. Stay within your boundaries. Maybe you step into it a little bit, but stay within your boundaries. I think it's just so important that we don't get overwhelmed by supplies. Don't go out and rush out and be like, this is it. I'm going to get all these supplies because then you just put all this pressure on you because now you've added a financial component into it. And nobody needs that pressure on themselves. Look at what you have. Think, what can we do? Can we go and dig outside together today? Great. Can we, maybe we're going to set up and we're going to paint their plastic trucks today. Cool. That's supplies you have around the house. Keep it within your boundaries. Keep it simple. We don't need elaborate. We don't need to add more pressure. And when you're looking at an activity, if you believe you can set it up in under five minutes, then that's the activity for you. I think if there's any more than a five minute prep, like I'm out and I'm the blogger and I'm out. Like there's absolutely no way I'm doing this. No, it's a hard pass. (laughs) I just think so often it comes back to just our own boundaries. I'm well known in my community for my hatred of (laughs) Play-Doh, which is so ironic because literally my kids have a mud pit in the backyard and I'm like, you know what, Play-Doh is where I draw my line. (laughs) But I'm... Fine with that, and that is a line I have drawn, and I can't do it. I don't like the now. Bits. You have to don't like hair. Okay, I was going to say
0: I don't you have like to when the now.
1: color. Okay, I don't like when the colors mix. I don't like that. Like half the time, when they're trying to like make something with Play-Doh, they need our help to come over. I want them to be independent. I hate when it gets like on the carpet, and then it's just got like fibers in it. I don't like the crumbs. I can't. I. <laughs> But Some my, really game. deep issues. I know. <laughs> then I'm like, but also if you want to go sit in the backyard and like paint your body, like I'm so into that journey for you. <laughs> but, but using Play-Doh at my kitchen table, I just cannot. <laughs> but again, I stay within my boundaries. I know what I can handle and I know what works for me. And you know what? My kids are gonna be fine having had a very limited Play-Doh experience in their childhood, bless my neighbor who gives them that experience or my friends who for sure pull out the Play-Doh when my kids come over as a little stick it tour. Like here, we're gonna pull out the Play-Doh for the kids and you have to watch this happen. I'm into that kind of like spiteful revenge <laughs> friendship. I love it, but it's fine. My point is, is you just stay within your boundaries. If you look at an activity or if you look at something with your time, you say, you know what, I, that makes my skin
0: crawl. Then it's not for you. Great tip, great tip, and my next question for you—I I feel like you've answered it, but I want to know if there is another tip that you have. So, your tip or trick for a parent just getting started with this type of play, like you said, just use the stuff that you have at home. I love that. But if is there another tip that you have when they're just starting of play and learning at home? What what do you have to share? I think one of
1: the one of the scariest things we see online is the sensory bin, <laughs> but it is one of the most valuable Mm. one of the most valuable activities or play options that you can have in your home is a sensory bin if you can scooch that boundary of yourself a little bit let me sell you on it for a second so when we talk about a sensory bin what we're talking about is truly a bin or think of an under the bed storage container filled with some sort of a material that the child can have a very immersive and sensory experience with their hands So I'm going to use rice as my example. I love rice. It can last for years. I have rice downstairs in a Ziploc bag that I think is going to kindergarten next year. Yeah, I think that's how old it is. It's so old. It lasts. And so how cool is that? This is this 89 cent supply that's going to last me. What other toy is going to last you that long for that cheap? So let's take our rice and we'll put it into our sensory bin. And we're going to set our sensory bin. I like to set it on a towel or a blanket, something that really defines the boundary. What you've just created for your child, and then put in some kitchen utensils. Give them something to play with. Maybe you put in a bowl and some, a cupcake tin and some scoops. Just a few things you have lying around the house. Sit with your child. Talk to them about the rules. My rules are always no dumping, no throwing, no eating. <laughs> Pretty basic rules. We go over this a lot. And in the early days of sensory binning, you do need to sit with your child. You need to sit right next to them and help them with those rules. No dumping, no throwing, no eating. They'll learn. Because here's what you're doing with a sensory bin. You're giving your child a chance to learn self-control. You're giving them a chance to learn impulse control. They want to throw the rice. They want this to be a wedding in the 1980s. They want your living room covered. But they're going to learn. And you're going to teach them. And how often do we ever get in parenting that chance to teach them about impulse control and self-control and playing within rules and boundaries? in a situation that is not them running into the street and we're screaming because they're in danger. Instead, we can give them this chance to learn these rules and learn about boundaries and learn about self-control and learn that when my parent sets a rule, no dumping, no throwing, no eating, I need to listen and they're serious. And should they dump or should they throw, you pick up that sensory bin, you say, our rules were no dumping, no throwing, no eating. We'll try again later for greater success. And you move it away. Will there be tears? Yes. There might be. Those are the hard parts of parenting. And that's oftentimes when we get that chance in parenting to really teach and not teach because, oh, they're scared of us or they're sad or, you know, we've been pulled. No, they're learning. And and they've had this chance to see that when my parent sets down a rule, they mean that rule. And again, we don't often get that kind of an opportunity in a situation that we're fully in control of. Usually it's in a situation where we're like, oh, my gosh, they just colored on the walls. And now I'm really angry about this. Now we have to have this big, heavy conversation. This is this time that you're really controlling. But also once they get used to that sensory bin, when, when we don't need to worry about the dumping, the throwing, the eating, they're having a science lesson right there. They're learning about cause and effect. They're learning about problem solving. They're in imaginary play. They're doing intense language work where they're practicing language skills. And my kids were doing a sensory bin one time and I could hear them talking about raspberry compotes because they'd heard that word on a cooking show. And then they were practicing that language and using that language. And that's exactly what we want to see in early childhood. There's all these math skills out of it with capacity and understanding volume you know, if I take this tiny glass of water, uh, this giant glass of water, and I try to pour it in this tiny container, what's going to happen? Sensory bins end up looking so scary on social media. But if you can step back, if you can say, you know what, I'm going to control this experience and I'm going to set this up in a way that is going to be the maximum learning for my child, because this really is big. This is. No different than they learned to keep that water in the bathtub. You you put down that boundary and they learned it. You put down a boundary at the dinner table that no throwing food and guess what? They learned it. We know they can learn these rules. So let's just apply it to a sensory bin. Let's just apply it to this little bin of stuff. And when we give them that chance, again, we've taught them self-control. We've taught them impulse control. We've taught them to play within a set of rules and that playing within a set of rules can still be fantastic and fun. And then we've given them All this chance to learn. And we've done it all with a couple dollars in rice, (laughs) supplies from our kitchen, and an under-the-bed storage container that you've probably had since college. And you did it. And you will see a payoff like no other if you can just push your boundary a little bit, push it a little bit, and set this chance up for your child. And I promise, and I never throw out an I promise, but I promise you will see you will see how cool this is for children of all ages. But so that would be my plug.
0: Greatest tip ever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Drop my- <laughs> That is so awesome. Oh my gosh. Okay, Susie, I think though this, my next question I think is the most wondered about question that we want to know, no pressure. But what is your number one favorite kid activity? I'm going to guess a sensory bin. You know what it
1: is. (laughs) It is. is, But if I
0: can even get more
1: specific, it's a pouring station, which is just a liquid sensory bin. Okay, talk to us about that. Yes. So just consider your child. Think of a water table or a bathtub or an under the bed storage container and fill up a couple of pitchers with water and give them a bunch of empty containers and just walk away. Tell them the water stays in the bin. And that's really all the rules you need to give. Put a big towel under it or set this outside and let them pour and experiment with their water. It is so fun. If you can add a little food coloring or a little, you know, liquid watercolor or even paint. Did you know you can add paint to water and it'll dye it the same way that food coloring will? It's actually really cool looking. But if you can do that, it it just opens them up. And that was one of the first activities I did with my son. And it was actually the first activity I ever had that went viral. So there will always be this deep love for me of a pouring station. But also uh, my kids now are five, seven, and eight. I had to do the math there. (laughs) There's a pouring station right now downstairs in my kitchen. And my kids are that old. And every one of them has visited that pouring station over the last couple of days and been pouring and mixing and I don't know what they're doing. They're doing kids stuff. It's not my thing. They're having so much fun with it. And I just I love a pouring station. And I think that's it's a really interesting one because you don't have to go buy anything. You have the supplies for this at home. You have water.
0: That's amazing. You have
1: cups. That's all you need. And then they learn to pour. They learn to pour. My five-year-old sitting there the other day with the big thing of milk pouring it into this glass. And my, I'm like rubbing my face over my hands like this, oh my gosh. And then he does it perfectly. And his aim is impeccable. He fills it up just right. Sets it back down. And my husband just goes, up oh, pouring station. <laughs> and it was. It was like, oh my gosh, all these years of doing a pouring station. And man, this kid is good at pouring. <laughs> and again, where else would he have learned that? Like if I hadn't been doing that pouring station, how many spilled glasses of milk and orange juice would there be all over my kitchen floor? But they had that chance in that safe, welcoming environment of a sensory bin.
0: <laughs> I'm immediately thinking of the movie, what is it, with Adam Sandler, Big Daddy, or whatever it oh, is. Oh, yeah. Where he, they're pouring the milk and mm-hmm. then it just goes everywhere. Everywhere. Um, that is what you can avoid, ladies and gentlemen. See,
1: he needed the pouring <laughs> station.
0: This call could have been solved. <laughs> No, that is such a helpful thing. And with summer, just around the corner, out, going outside and doing this, that, for parents who are worried about water getting everywhere in the house, what a great idea. Yeah, it's so easy. It's so fun.
1: They get so inspired by it. Kids just take it and they run with it. You know, I always joke. I'm like, you know, we we can't see the fun. They, kids look at a bin of rice and they see endless possibilities. We're like, okay, it's rice. Like, great. <laughs> <laughs> but they see it and how cool is that That just shows you how different their brains are than ours and how cool that we get the chance to watch it so true
0: it's so true oh my gosh okay Susie, are there any resources that you recommend that our listeners look into to learn more about childhood development and hands-on learning I mean me. Yeah, just mostly me. No. <laughs> I really think just
1: on Instagram there are so many and I'm happy to to send you a few for the show notes of just some awesome. great accounts to follow that will keep you rolling on this train of child development all different domains speech and reading and and all sorts of different domains. I think that there is an unbelievable amount of free content out there on especially on Instagram and it's just about knowing where to go and and who to follow and who to look for. But I really think that you don't need to run out there. You can, if how you consume information is we consume it through social media, let's make a really curated social media list Yes, and get some great people to follow. And you can really help learn from some really specific experts on this. And I think there is, there's just so many great resources out there. So I'll throw some in the show notes. Do I sound like a podcaster?
0: A little bit. i going to toss them yeah. in the
1: show notes. <laughs> but that's I amazing. did it.
0: We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it, okay, y'all. Great. I'm a fan. And now this is your time for your plug because right. we need to know, do you have anything new and exciting going on that we should know about?
1: Not in the like sense that like something that, you know, people can grasp onto, but I'm getting my master's. I finish. I graduate in May. I'm so excited. This has been 20 months of trying to run a business and my kids and I'm homeschooling them and I'm trying to get my master's in early childhood education. I just, I'm really excited for May to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to not have school anymore.
0: We are so not proud of you. Oh Thank my you. gosh, Susie. Like, all the things you just listed, I thought I'm like, oh, I'm running a business. I have two kids. I'm in school for, for this. But like yeah. uh, it's been intense. Me?
1: <laughs> it's been intense. So I'm really excited to get that off my plate. So then I can focus on some really cool and really fun stuff that I'm sure I'll have coming up. But well, good yeah. for you.
0: That's so oh, awesome. Thank you. I know. It's
1: really great. It's really good. But I do have my parenting book. It's available on Amazon. It's called Busy Toddler's Guide to Actual Parenting. And it's just I try to say it's just middle of the road. There's so much of parenting pings from one extreme to the other. And and that's just never how I've been in my life or how I've, I've done things with my kids. And I like to just walk straight down the middle. So if you're into middle of the road parenting, <laughs> that's my parenting book. And then I sell a home preschool program that I wrote back in many years ago when my kids were preschoolers. And it's an absolute joy in my life to see how far it's reached and the thousands of families that have used this program, especially during the pandemic. It's called Playing Preschool and it's available on my website. It's all hands-on. It's all (laughs)
0: play-based. See, this is what I needed. This was what I was looking for. M- plus the <laughs> masters. I love that. Yeah. And and you guys were also going to be sharing all of these details in the show notes so that you can just click and get a real peek at all the things that Susie is doing. So that is mm, fantastic. Uh, and Susie, any final thoughts or words of advice for our listeners?
1: I think so often in in this age of parenting, we're we're almost taught to not trust ourselves. We're taught to trust everybody else and everybody else that's going on around out there, but nobody else is you and nobody else has your kids or your life or your house or your family. Nobody else is walking in your shoes. So walk in your shoes, stay in your shoes, look at your children and your family and find your best path. And that's going to look so different than someone else's best path. Don't judge that the wrong way. That's their best. And you find your best and and celebrate both of those. But really. Just finding that trust in your own parenting and taking that trust and saying, you know what? I am so happy for that other person that they can have that experience. This is mine and this is what works best for us. And we're going to keep going forward with this. Find that trust in yourself because you really you really are doing a great job with your kid. I always say that. If you're stopping and listening to a podcast on parenting and that's what you're doing in, in your free time, let, let me tell you, you're doing a good job. <laughs> You're an involved parent and you're doing a good job.
0: Oh, amen. Beautifully said. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Susie. Oh, man. And for people who are wondering, where do I go to find Susie? Where where can our listeners go to find you? You can find me
1: on Instagram. I'm at Busy Toddler, even though I have no toddlers left, but I'm still at Busy Toddler and I always will be at Busy Toddler. And my website is BusyToddler.com. Amazing.
0: Oh my goodness. This was so much fun. (laughs) So So fun. (laughs) So interesting too. Susie. thank you again for sharing your knowledge and your passion with us. It is so evident. I just, I can't wait to implement this knowledge with my own children. Oh, I'm so happy to share it all. My pleasure. Oh, wonderful. And for our listeners out there, to learn more about Susie and Busy Toddler, you can visit her on her website at busytoddler.com or on Instagram at Busy Toddler. Our team will be posting today's episode on our Baby Chick Facebook page. So if you have any questions or comments about our discussion, please share them with us in the comment section. And as always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Chick Chat the Baby Chick podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us an honest review. Cheers to all of us making it to nap time.